I think you might be ruined when it comes to tasting other kinds of bourbon. Your frame of reference might be ruined because this is very, very good. And not all bourbons are like this. Hi, I'm Dee Hicks, and welcome to the School of Leadership, leveraged lessons from high-impact leaders. For the past 30 years, I've researched the disciplines, habits, mental models, and assumptions of the most effective leaders. This podcast takes what I've learned from over 2,000 of these influencers and distills it into practical tools and tips you can use immediately. So let's get started. This is going to be a really good cigar. I got one of these in a sampler pack a few months ago. I'm using a nice torch to just toast the end of this cigar. Anyway, I got one of these in a sampler pack a few months ago. and thought, oh, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I've had a few nub cigars before, but I've never had one this good. Oh, this is really good. If you've never seen a nub cigar, I used to call these dog walkers. <laughs> this is a cigar that is, so oh, I think it's um, four, maybe four, four and a half inches. I think it's four inches. It's about four inches long, and it's a 60 ring gauge. So that's a pretty good sized cigar. It's maybe the size of my thumb. Really, really got got a nice sweet taste and the smell when I first light it, let it sit there for a second and warm up before I take the first puff. You know, that's the way you're supposed to light a cigar. You toast the foot a little bit and then let it rest for a minute or so and then relight it to get a nice rosy toasty end on it. So it's a nice orange red. Oh yeah, that's perfect. Let's give it a try. Mm, mm, mm. Oh yeah. Well, this is the Nub Nuance Triple Smoked Cigar. It used to be called, I think it used to be called the Nub Cafe Espresso or something like that. It's got a nice sweet taste to it. The smoke is copious. It's filling up the studio today on this Thursday afternoon when I'm recording this podcast. The reviews say that it's medium to full, and I've had a few of these before because once I stumbled across one in a sampler pack that I got out, I thought, oh, gotta have this. So hopped on cigar bid dot i think i bought two five packs of these cigars and they were at about two dollars a piece and then i guess folks decided that they're good like i did and everyone discovered it so when i went through those cigars over the summer i uh, decided i'd get some more and give them away and keep some for myself and they were about four dollars and 25 cents a cigar on cigar bid wow if you're a cigar aficionado, then uh, you may want to keep your eye on these. They have a Connecticut wrapper. They're what's called a Parejo, and country they came from is Nicaragua. The filler is from Dominican Republic. The binder is also from the Dominican Republic. And then the wrapper is called a Connecticut-style wrapper. So it means it's kind of a medium brown. It's not that super dark Maduro brown, but dark enough. This is a wonderful cigar. Mm-mm. You know, when I first opened these up, I could kind of smell what was about to take place. <laughs> 
After a few puffs of this, I have come to think of this as maybe one of my favorite short smokes. I want to set you up with a bourbon that I got, I don't know, a couple of months ago maybe, maybe a month ago. A friend of mine came in with this bourbon with a sheepish grin on his face. It had been shipped to him up here in the Pacific Northwest from its origin in St. Augustine, Florida. Let's pour a little bit of this. Beautiful bourbon. Beautiful, beautiful container that's in. Pour just a little bit of that. Don't even want to spill one drop because it is that good. Got a beautiful color to it. And I poured it into a iceless Norlin glass. I've talked about these on the podcast before, these glasses. They are amazing. So take a take a sniff of this. Mm-mm. First thing I smell is oranges. You know those little oranges, the little tangerines? I think they're tangerines. Maybe they're called cuties or sweeties or snookums or something like that. You know the little bags of these at at about Christmas time they start coming out? That's what this smells like to me. Ooh, this is delightful smelling stuff. And ooh, the taste. Mm Mm-mm. Oh, yeah. This is just as good as it was the first time I had it a few weeks ago. So Cody's a friend. We were in a conversation a while ago talking about bourbon, and he said, I'm not really a bourbon drinker. And uh, of course, I rolled my eyes, and I thought, how could you be a friend of mine if you're not a bourbon drinker? But he said, I did try one bourbon, and I really liked it. He told me a little bit about the bourbon, and he said it's the only bourbon he'd ever really tried, if I remember that story correctly. And uh, we kind of passed the time and went on talking about some other things. Then he came in and sat down with me and brought in this package that had been shipped to him from the St. Augustine Distillery in Florida, St. Augustine, Florida. It's called the Spirit of Florida. That's the St. Augustine Distillery. Great story behind it. And uh, and then we I opened this up, and I thought, this is beautiful. And the bottle itself, even if the bourbon tasted like cheap swill, <laughs> the bottle is gorgeous. So I thought, oh, hey, I'll give this a try. I was really pretty grateful that he brought this stuff in. And it's um, just to kind of set you up a little bit on this, if you want to get yourself a bottle, it's, it's a little bit of a, on the higher end. If you have to have it shipped to you, you're, you're going to drop some coins. So Cody, I, I really appreciate you taking a risk and ordering this, having it shipped up so that we could enjoy it together. The uh, the bourbon itself is just called the Saint Bourbon. It's uh, 114, I think, 114 proof bourbon. Yeah, let me look at the bottle here. Yep, that's what it is. It's a barrel strength uh, product as well. So it's possible, you know, if you get one, it might be 115 or 16 or it might be 111 or something like that because, you know, it changes a little bit from barrel to barrel. So this is really, really good. They say that this exclusive spirit, of course, everyone says that about their spirit, right? (laughs) Their bourbon or whatever they're making. This is exclusive. This actually is. This is really good. They say that it's uh, it's made by finishing their award-winning Florida straight bourbon in barrel that previously held their old-fashioned mix. And then they bottle it at barrel strength, and it's it's so smooth that you absolutely will not believe that you're drinking a high-proof spirit. I agree completely. This does not hit like 114-plus proof at all. Wow, it hits more like a 90-proof. But I'm sure if I drank very much of it, it would hit in a different way. <laughs> but I won't. I'll sip this, and I'll enjoy it. It is incredibly smooth. Now, most of the time when folks talk about bourbon or scotch being smooth, what they mean is that it's sweet and a very very, very low proof. But what I mean when I say this is smooth is that it's got a pretty nice, thick, viscous feeling in the mouth. It's not as thick as syrup, <laughs> but it's certainly not as thin as Lipton tea. Nice, deep amber color. Hold it up to the light in this Norlin glass. It is actually a 
beautiful bourbon. As I let it sit here in my mouth and, and enjoy it with the cigar, I notice some, you know, if you have a cherry that's been dipped in chocolate, I think they have those kind of in the, in the holiday season too, those boxes of cherry chocolates or something like that. They're super, super sweet. Now, this is not sweet like that, but it has that flavor to it to me. Beautiful flavor of a little hint of cherry and a little hint of dark chocolate. I can pick up just a touch of vanilla, like the real vanilla, not the fake vanilla, real vanilla, and then a little bit of a lingering spice. I'm, I'm intrigued. I can't quite tell what the spice is, but as you and I chat here, we'll be able to tell what the spice is. So here we are. Once again, I'm taking more time to describe the bourbon than I am to describe the idea that I want to share with you today, but this bourbon might be well worth it. Thank you very much, Cody. I think you might be ruined when it comes to tasting other kinds of bourbon. Your frame of reference might be ruined because this is very, very good, and not all bourbons are like this. This is a really, really nice one. It's possible that if you, like Cody, try this bourbon, and this is your very first bourbon to try, that probably have to take out a second mortgage on your house if you pick up the bourbon habit. All right. Oh, talking so much that my, my nub nuance <laughs> cigar, triple smoke went out. It's kind of fun here because we're going to be talking with you today about an idea that in and of itself is very nuanced. And let's put it together with Cody's experience. We're going to talk about frame of reference and nuance <laughs> as we get through this. This is the first in a series that I'm calling the mental models of the great leaders that I have known. It's likely that I'll be talking about you. I've gotten to know, as you know by now, up close and personal, some of the great leaders. Some of these wonderful leaders that I'm privileged to know are folks whose names you would readily recognize. And some of them are folks whose names you will never know, but they're equally great in their own right. Well, what is it that makes these leaders so great? And I want to share with you the constellation of mental models that they seem to all have. Use different words to describe them. And so that's why it's taken me a while to distill these into a series of podcasts for you. But what is it that makes them so great? Well, I think a lot of things. Mostly, though, it's their mental habits. It is their mental models that make them great. For sure, they've got specific set of values. For example, I don't deserve, I serve. They've got specific sets of disciplines about how they take care of their mind and their body and their relationships and their money and their... We've talked about a lot of those over the years. And they've got specific habits for sure. All of them have those same kind of habits that we've talked about. And they all surround themselves with the right group of people who dare them to be great and they dare their friends to be great as well. But at the core of it... I think it's their mental models that make them great. And you remember what mental models are. They're constructs that we make of reality because we don't necessarily experience the world as it is. We experience it as we think it is. And so our job, our goal, our aim as leaders is to make sure that the mental models that we have are as close to reality as we can possibly get them. We really don't do ourselves or any of the folks we lead or manage or supervise or influence any favors if we are not fans of reality. And reality can be kind of uncomfortable. And so many people, instead of taking the road to reality and doing the disciplines that it takes to do that, they vacillate between the two options that are left to them, either fear or fantasy. We've got whole industries built around getting us to go when we are confronting reality, and it's a bit unpleasant for us, into fantasy. There's a whole bunch of industries out there that make a ton 
ton of money off of us by calling us like a siren's song into fantasy when reality is a little too hard to bear. Or the other side of it, where we're called into fear. And a lot of organizations, a lot of enterprises, a lot of chunks of our economy make a lot of money when we vacillate into fear. I choose that middle road instead. I choose the road where I am trying to get closer and closer to reality. I want to see things the way they are. I want to know you the way you are. I want to understand your challenges. I want to understand how to build our own enterprises and businesses the way they are. I want to understand how things are working in reality, not in fantasy or not in fear. These great leaders that I have known have mental models that are very specifically designed by them that they've learned from other great leaders that help them discover and live in reality, that help them move their naturally lazy brains, yours and mine are just like that, where we want to just know just enough to get by, away from that kind of lazy, foggy way of living and into reality. We want our mental models to serve us well. So they've got a series of these these mental models, and this makes them great. I think great leaders have great mental models, and I think great mental models make great leaders. Not so great mental models might make things that are not so great. I wonder if Alexander the Great had great mental models. I've also wondered. Was there an Alexander the not-so-great? <laughs> Was there an Alexander the average? Well, probably don't hear about him in history. It's just been a huge privilege to get up close and personal with some people that I regard as great leaders. So in this first series, I'd like to share with you one of their mental models. There'll be several because each one of these podcasts that roll forward for the next little while will be about one of the mental models that I think these great leaders have got. So you remember, of course, what mental models are. And we've been thinking about that for quite some time, and we've been talking about that for quite some time. So you know by now, if you've listened to even three or four or five of my podcasts, or if you've gone over to our Hilt Academy on the YouTube side of things and looked at some of those Hilt Academy YouTube videos that we have talked a lot about mental models and how important and how powerful they are. They profoundly shape us, and we've all got mental models, whether we put them in place on purpose and have deliberately tried to sharpen our mental models, or whether we have borrowed those mental models just almost by osmosis, <laughs> by swimming in this sea in which we live and just picking up the mental models of other people or cultures or, or the larger society. So here, in part one, I want to share the first mental model. This is not the most important one. They're all very, very important, so they're not going to be presented in order of importance, but they are all very, very important. So welcome to part one here in the mental models of the great leaders that I have known. Let's start with, uh, let's start with Einstein. <laughs> you know, Albert Einstein, you know, the guy with the hair. <laughs> you remember him. Hopefully you know enough about him and you studied enough about him to know a few things about him. By the way, don't you find it interesting that even even though Einstein was one of the most brilliant people to live in our modern age, his name is often used as a throwaway insult. <laughs> Somebody does something stupid and you say, hey, Einstein. It's kind of interesting if we flip that around. But Einstein was a pretty sharp guy. And you know that one of the things he is known for is the theory of relativity. Now, we're going to go somewhere with this because this relates specifically to the first mental model. In fact, 
I'd like to call the first mental model the theory of relativity, borrowing it from Einstein. Now, I'm not going to get deeply into this, and I'm not going to walk over to a whiteboard over there and, and start writing formulas up there because I don't know what they are, <laughs> and you can't see it. It's a podcast. But stick with me for just a hot minute here. The theory of relativity, I'm going to simplify it as much as possible so I can get to the point behind it, is the concept that he divided this theory of relativity, by the way, into two sections. Uh, that there's general and then there's special relativity. Special relativity applies to a frame of reference that's moving at a constant speed. In general relativity applies to a frame of reference when things are accelerating. Special relativity applies to a frame of reference when things are not moving. Imagine if you are uh, on the back of a flatbed truck going down the road at a constant speed of 40 miles an hour and you're sitting on the back of the flatbed truck. That frame of reference called special relativity applies to you. General relativity would apply to you and the rules and the concepts behind general relativity would apply to you if you're sitting on the back of that flatbed truck in a lawn chair and the driver is slowly accelerating and going faster and faster and faster. Now, if he didn't accelerate quickly so as to throw you back in your rocking lawn chair, but just accelerated incrementally, and if you didn't have your eyes open and you were just quietly listening as the wind went by, you might not notice that you're accelerating because to you, it feels like you're sitting still, but you are accelerating. All right, so we have a couple of perspectives here. One is the perspective of the flatbed truck moving down the road. The other is the perspective of you in your lawn chair sitting back, sipping a Blue Moon or a bourbon or something like that in your lawn chair on the back of a flatbed truck. And the other is the perspective of the driver who knows that you started out at 30 miles per hour and now you're doing 50 and now you're doing 55 miles per hour. He knows that you are accelerating and he's trying, in effect, to accelerate slowly enough that you won't feel it. All right, we've got three different frames of reference, three different perspectives. So latch on with me to this idea of the frame of reference, because this is the mental model that all great leaders have got. They understand that there is a frame of reference and that if you change your frame of reference, you don't necessarily change the facts on the ground, but you change the rules around the person within that frame of reference. Therefore, you change the experience that the person Person is having in that frame of reference. Donnie and I were driving a while back from Western Washington over in the Olympic Peninsula area where he and I live and work. Picked me up, and uh, actually I picked him up, and we were in we were in my SUV. Decided to drive across the state and to meet with some of our friends over in Eastern Washington. I fell asleep in the passenger side after we'd been on the road for an hour or so, or two hours, something like that. It's about a five-hour drive from where we live to Eastern Washington, and I fell asleep just nice and calm and relaxed, and had a nice nap. At some point in time, 45 minutes later, perhaps I woke up and I just noticed as I woke up that my, my SUV was about four to five inches lower, closer to the ground than it had been when I fell asleep. That's the kind of SUV I've got. Maybe you've got one of those two that when it gets up to a certain speed, it actually sinks. The suspension lowers. I think on mine it lowers maybe five inches, something like that. Enough for me to notice it if I'm paying attention. And it does that because the car is saying, oh, so you want to break a few laws of physics and of uh, the state patrol. Okay, hmm, 
hmm, all right. So then it hunkers down a little bit and it handles a little bit more sporty. Well, I woke up and realized, oh, we're lower. Well, the reason we were lower is because Donnie had, had gone past that certain speed, which is a pretty high rate of speed in order to get that car to go down like that. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Then I realized that in a flash that the scenery on the outside of the car, that the landscape we were flying by was a little blurrier than it was before I fell asleep. But it wasn't my eyes. <laughs> it was the speed with which we were traveling. Now, you know that Donnie had probably been giggling and grinning the entire time because he does like driving quickly. I was sound asleep. I didn't recognize we were accelerating at all. My frame of reference being asleep was different than his frame of reference. And that is a very important thing to realize. It's not exactly what Einstein meant, but we start to get there. Now, let's go back to the idea of the flatbed truck. Let's say that you are on the back of that flatbed truck. You scoot your lawn chair aside and you stand up on the back of the flatbed truck. It's now doing, let's say it's doing 35 miles an hour and you have a ball in your hand and you drop the ball while you're moving down the road. Your experience of the ball being dropped is that it goes from about shoulder height straight down to your feet. Now, what if I'm standing on the side of the road watching you go by, wondering what kind of hillbilly are you with a lawn chair on the back of a flatbed truck driving down the road, dropping a ball. And when I watch you go by from my right to my left at 35 or I don't know, maybe it's 40 miles per hour now. And if I lock on the ball and watch the ball drop, it isn't dropping straight down. It's dropping at an angle. Of course, you can imagine that, right? So we have two different frames of reference. We're not changing the facts on the ground. The ball dropped. The ball went from five and a half or five feet above the bed of the truck to contact with the bed of the truck. The ball was pulled by gravity toward the center of the earth. I saw that it didn't drop straight down. I saw it dropped at an angle. So if I meet you later and I say, what were you doing dropping that ball at an angle? You'd say to me, I didn't drop the ball at an angle. I dropped it straight down. And the facts on the ground are exactly the same. The ball went from high to low. But your frame of reference made it look and feel like the ball drops straight down. My frame of reference made it look like the ball dropped at an angle. Isn't that interesting. That is a simple illustration of Einstein's theory of relativity, at least one part of his theory of relativity. The frame of reference, while it doesn't necessarily change the facts on the ground, changes some of the rules by which those facts are being experienced and being interpreted by individuals or by other forces around it. Frame of reference matters. This is it. This is the great mental model. This is the mental model that all great leaders have, that I have studied and been up close to. They hold this high degree of curiosity in mind constantly. It is a deep and abiding drive that they've got to understand the frame of reference because frame of reference matters. These great leaders know that we cannot understand until we understand the frame of reference. We can't understand to quote, I believe it was Sun Tzu who said, that we can't understand a problem or a challenge until we understand the age in which that problem lives, the context, the frame of reference in which that problem lives. And again, while the facts on the ground are not relative, the experience, and therefore, lean in here, 
the meaning that I give to the experience are different. They are relative. Not everything is relative. Careful now. If people walk around and say, it's all relative now. There is no truth. There is no objective reality. Well, then slap them upside of the head. No, I probably shouldn't do that. I mean, they're deluded when they think that. That my perspective is what really matters. There are timeless principles and unchanging truths. There is reality. It's a person's perspective, their frame of reference on the reality that we need to pay attention to, but it doesn't mean that the ball didn't drop. It means that they experienced the ball dropping straight down, and I experienced the ball dropping at an angle as it went by me. So if people say, you know, you know what they all say, your perspective is reality. Well, that's lazy. No, it isn't. Your perspective is not reality. Your perspective is your perspective of reality. It's your frame of reference on reality. Your perspective feels like reality, but it is incomplete. If anyone says, well, my perspective is my reality, well, you could say back to them, well, your perspective is incomplete. What you see, what you experience, unless you were walking around in some deeply deluded state brought on by a lazy brain and too much bourbon, <laughs> you are actually experiencing something, but it is incomplete. This is the great mental model of all of the great leaders I've studied and known. They know that perspective matters or that frame of reference matters, but it is only part of the story. It's the theory of relativity in leadership. I think this is a wonderful thing to know. All right, so you get this, right? You can easily imagine if you have somebody who is a brand new supervisor in your organization and she's never supervised people before and you have a supervisory team meeting and the other four people who are supervisors have been supervisors for eight or 10 or 12 years, that any issue that comes up is going to be perceived differently. Not wholly differently, not radically differently, but differently enough to almost feel like it's not the same topic. That brand new supervisor is looking at all the same themes that the seasoned supervisors are looking at, but she doesn't have the same frame of reference. So she's going to give those things different meaning. Oh, let's zoom in just a little bit more. What if you were to step in and deal with somebody who's a part of your team, who's a very poor performer, and you have only known them for two months and you stepped into a new position and now you realize this person is performing very, very poorly. If you didn't know the perspective or the frame of reference of someone else who's worked with that person for 10 or 15 years, years, you would come to the wrong conclusions about that person's poor performance and about what to do with it. What if Biff has been a horrible performer for all those years and folks have just ignored it? You, brand new on the scene, think, let's give him another chance or another two chances or another 22 chances. <laughs> it's because of your frame of reference. Frame of reference matters. Okay, how do you use this? Let's get right to the end of this. Let's, let's get to the meat of this stuff. Now that you've got this theory of relativity, that your frame of reference makes things look relative. Not everything, but some things look relative. How do you actually use this? First of all, remember, your frame of reference is not my frame of reference. In your workplace, your frame of reference is based upon your experience, your position, and what you're trying to accomplish. My frame of reference is, as well, based upon my experience and based upon my position and what I'm trying to accomplish. And we may not be aligned in those two areas. Remember, right out of the gate, your frame of reference is not my frame of reference. Therefore, here's my second point. Get curious and stay curious. Get voraciously curious about my frame of reference. 
The third idea, ask people what something means to them or what they think it could mean to them in the future, especially if it's a change of any sort. Just ask them. Don't assume that what they think it means is the same thing that you think it means. All right, here's the fourth idea. Remember, people's sense of, let's talk Einstein here now, right? People's sense of time and space warps the meaning that they give to something. If someone feels like it's going to take two years to get something done and they feel like they need it done now, it will warp the meaning that they give to that challenge. If they feel like, if their perspective is that they have been talking about this for six months and nothing has happened about it, they're extremely frustrated about it, and then you just find out about it, your sense of time and their sense of time warps the meaning that you and they give to that thing. Now, you're not completely ignoring it. You're not making it up. You can, you can still tell it's a ball being dropped, but time matters a lot. So ask questions like how long or when or how often and where were you? And what was that like to try to get a sense of time and space around perspectives? Because it affects our frame of reference. Here's the fifth idea. Slow down. If you're a leader, a manager, or a supervisor, slow down. Stop. Stoop. Stay in their frame of reference until you begin to understand it. This is especially important if you've never done their job before, or if it's been so long since you've done their job that you really can't remember what it was like, or all your memories are peachy and sweet. <laughs> so slow down, stop, stoop, stay in their frame of reference until you begin to understand it. This might mean you need to step in and do their job for a little while. You'll do it poorly because it's not your job anymore, or maybe it never was, but get in there and feel what they feel, especially during times of change. Here's the follow-up idea to that one, which is you'll know when you get it when first you feel a little bit of empathy for that person. And then second, they tell you that you get it. <laughs> and then third, because you get it, you begin to edit your approach a little bit. You may not change the decision. Maybe you shouldn't change the decision or the direction, but you'll edit how you do it. You'll edit how you implement it. All right, when do you use this theory of relativity mental model? Well, the short answer is all the time. All You and I, all the time, we keep our mind open and realize that my frame of reference and your frame of reference are not the same. Cody's frame of reference, when he got this Saint Bourbon and bought it because the bottle was pretty and it was on a great vacation down there and he was having a good time and took a sip of it and thought, you know, this is pretty good. His frame of reference was that of someone who's not a bourbon aficionado. He didn't realize how good this stuff really is <laughs> because his frame of reference didn't provide for him to do that. When he first brought it in and we cracked that bottle open and I sipped it and I went, oh, wow, this is really good. I have a frame of reference that I've tried all of the bourbons. <laughs> I, I, that's probably not true, but it sure feels like it. I think at last count, I've got 75 bourbons on my shelf. I've probably tried three times that many outside of that, not in a month, but over my lifetime. So I really enjoy subtle bourbons. My frame of reference and his frame of reference are different. The value that Cody gave to this bourbon had to do with his vacation, with the cool look of the bottle, probably the coin that he dropped on this bourbon. Now that's how valuable it was because of his frame of reference. My frame of reference is a completely different way of valuing this bourbon. First of all, it was a gift, and I appreciate Cody and his friendship, but not only was it a gift, which makes things taste sometimes better, <laughs> right? But it's just 
flat out good, right? And I'd never even heard of it before. So when I gave it a taste, I thought, wow, this is amazing. It's because of my frame of reference. So when do you use this theory of relativity, applying it to the frame of reference? When do you do it? Well, like I said, all the time. But specifically, whenever there is a change that even slightly impacts schedule, structure, space, staffing, status, or stuff. That's the stuff of my work, the tools, the tools of my work. But I call it stuff because everything else started with an S. You might want to hit rewind and listen to all of those again. Whenever something changes slightly or significantly, any of those things that begin with S, you need to zoom in and understand the frame of reference that person has or that those people have got because you will blow right by it. The thing you think is wonderful is going to go through the theory of relativity because they don't see it from the same angle you see it at. Now, I'm not saying that because they don't, that somehow you're making a bad decision. I'm just saying that you're going to be able to edit how you make the decision, when you make the decision, and the approach of communicating the decision a little bit when you understand the theory of relativity applied to people's perspective. Another way to apply this is whenever things seem like they're a little bit harder than they should be. It's taking a little longer than it should. It's, it's a little harder than it should. And hmm, wait a second, I might be missing a frame of reference. So here we have it. This is one of the great mental models and great mental models make great leaders. <laughs> so there we have it. That's the first one. Stick around. We'll have some more coming up in the following days and weeks where we uncover a few more of these excellent mental models. Oh, and that is still incredibly good. This Saint Bourbon from St. Augustine Distillery is so, so very good. Cody, I appreciate it. I'm not sure if you're going to listen to this podcast, but this is really, really good stuff. Ah, I appreciate that you shared it with me and, um, and now I can use it to prompt Einstein's theory of relativity. <laughs> uh, I got to relight my nuance cigar. Going to kick back and enjoy the rest of this. Talking so much that it went out twice on me here. Get that thing going again. And I'm going to sit back in the studio, put my feet up, and I'm going to enjoy the St. Bourbon. Great stuff. Have a great day. Keep up the good work. We need you to succeed. Thanks for joining me. I know your time is valuable, and I appreciate the opportunity to spend some of it with you. If this was worthwhile, why not take a minute and share this podcast with a friend? You could also check out our YouTube channel that's packed full of more ideas that will help you grow as a leader. It's called the Hilt Academy on YouTube. H-I-L-T stands for High Impact Leadership Training. You can also find my latest books on Amazon. Just search for Dr. D. Hicks or you can find out more on dhicks.com. Once again, thanks. Keep up the good work.